0: Hello and welcome to Deep North, the official podcast of Iceland Review. Today we'll be sitting down with staff writer Eric Pomeranke. We'll be reading his article, Mycological Magic, Foraging with Ison's Mushroom Queen, for the latest issue of the magazine. And afterwards we'll be asking him uh, a few questions about the article and its composition.
1: On a gray afternoon in late August... A small crowd has gathered near the old hydroelectric power station in Etli the Dalut, a nature area near the capital. Helena Marta Stefanstottir, a specialist in the forestry service, has prepared a lecture on mushroom foraging 101 for the amateur mycologists gathered here. But it seems to be the first day of fall, and as the wind picks up, a drizzle slowly grows into a light shower. The children are getting restless, and it's only through their low murmur that I'm able to pick up fragments of tips. Never eat the ones that... Usually a white mushroom will... I'm not exactly reassured, but everything is getting damp, and we head off for the cover of the woods to continue our search. Retirees, university students, and young families all head off in search of mossy nooks, Wicker baskets and pocket knives in hand. We trickle back and forth between the woods and Helena, who stands at the ready to help identify what can end up with dinner tonight and what's best left alone. Some of the most common names that I hear are Lerkesweppur, or Larch Bolit, Furisweppur, Slippery Jack, and Slimestertitk, Slimy Spike Cap, a Trionupedla, or liberty cap, a psychedelic mushroom, is unceremoniously declared poisonous and tossed onto the ever-growing midden under the picnic table. It's still drizzling, but under the cover of the trees here in Etlithadalur, nobody seems to mind too much. Maybe it's been too long since I've had dirt under my fingernails, sat among the moss and rocks, digging around with a pocket knife like a toddler. Maybe the curious and colorful names remind me of the birds that I like to observe. Whatever it is, after this afternoon outing, I had mushrooms on my mind. So, when I heard there had been a new species of fungus discovered in
0: North Iceland, I knew whom I had to call. The first written mention of Icelandic mushrooms can be found in then Bishop of Skålholt Gisli Ottsson's 1638 manuscript De Mirapelepuslandai on the wonders of Iceland. In it, he lists the quote, "edible roots that can be found in nature, including Svepar, a generic term for mushrooms, and Kua luppe, Birch bolt.
1: Gvud Ri Giva Eelstortir is the only full-time mycologist in Iceland. Among her colleagues in academia, the Forest Service and other agencies, she's affectionately known as the Mushroom Queen, or Svehbetrottningen. Earlier this summer, over the Merchants Weekend, she also helped in identifying a new species of fungus, previously unknown to Iceland. Though in talking with Githa, discoveries of this kind are less scientific breakthroughs and more another day at the office, Indeed, when I ask how many species are known in Iceland, she tells me that she's lost count and needs to double-check. For the record, there are about 2,000 species of fungi that are known to grow in Iceland, about 700 of which have large fruiting bodies that we would recognize as mushrooms. Kida works for the Icelandic Institute of Natural History. She is also a member of the Ejafjordur Forestry Society, which manages Kjartnaskor Forest, a nature area just outside of Akareri. During the annual Merchant's Day weekend in August, the society organizes a Forest Day, which includes a demonstration on the local mushrooms and how to identify them. The public is encouraged to bring mushrooms for identification, which is how the recent discovery occurred. There were two men, a young boy and his father, who came with a basket full of mushrooms. And among them were these rather ugly brown pods, Gita tells me. They aren't much to look at, resembling truffles in appearance, though not taste. After some microscopic analysis, it was determined that the sample belongs to the genus Rhizopogon, known colloquially as false truffles. Such fungi have not been recorded in Iceland before. These fungi grow below the ground as a ball, Gila explains, they are often found in association with pine. Specifically, this type has been found to occur in some trademarked soil mixtures that are sometimes used abroad. In addition to the many challenges that already face Icelandic forestry efforts, such as sheep grazing, harsh winds, and long winters, much of Iceland's soil does not have the proper mycological environment for trees. This is one reason why introduced species such as lodgepole pine have proven so popular in Icelandic forestry efforts. Their fungal root ecosystem allows them to tolerate harsher conditions than other trees. If you're going to plant trees, you might not have the right mycological environment, she continues. Such soil mixtures can help to seed new saplings with fungi that help them take up nutrients. These fungal helpers aren't just a nice boost for the struggling trees. They're necessary for their growth. Indeed, trees and fungi share a deep evolutionary history with fungi having been attached to plant roots since plants have existed on dry land. Occasionally, experimental tree plantations may use such proprietary soil mixtures and a new fungus may find its way to Iceland. It's always fun to find something new, the Mushroom Queen tells me, but we usually find a new species every year, and there are many more that haven't been registered. Our forests are also getting older, and with more developed forests, with more deadwood, there are more and more opportunities for fungi. Last year, for example, four new large fungi were registered in Iceland. For the most part, these fungi are benign, But there have been some species that mycologists are concerned about. Phytopthora, for example, is a genus of, quote, fungus-like water molds. Phytopthora infestans was responsible for the Irish potato blight, and members of this genus continue to cause some of the most destructive crop failures in the world. While Phytopthora has yet to be identified in Iceland, it's species like this that make the identification of new fungi in Iceland more than a fun romp in the woods.
0: Tryonupella, Liberty Cap, a species of fungi containing the psychoactive compound psilocybin, grows natively in Iceland. There has recently been increased interest in Iceland in legalizing psilocybin for treatment of depression. Of
1: course, we sit in the middle of the ocean, so how does this stuff get here? Gita asks. Unfortunately, it's not always obvious, and once spores establish themselves in a habitat, there's no way to turn back the clock. Fungal spores can arrive in Iceland on wind currents or on a migratory bird's leg, but historically, one of the most common ways that foreign fungi made their way to Iceland was on boats. In the early 20th century, she says, we saw a lot of fungi from Denmark and Norway. During the earliest afforestation efforts in Iceland, it was common to uproot saplings from the mainland, roll them up in turf, place them in a barrel, and ship them off to Iceland. Due to this shipping method, saplings would arrive with plenty of Danish and Norwegian soil still clinging to their roots, and with it, fungi. If you look at Reudewacht, for example, you still see a distinctive mycological environment there, she says. Reudewacht is a lake in the capital region which travelers pass by on their way south, overlooked by the Morkunbladiv newspaper headquarters. Around the turn of the 20th century, the area around Reudewacht was used as a tree nursery. And although it's been a century since, this area still has a distinctively Danish fungal landscape. Because of possible side effects like this, Icelandic foresters have since stopped importing whole saplings, now importing seeds when necessary, and growing them in Icelandic nurseries. Such historical practices have also created a distinctive map of Iceland's fungi. While the most common species, such as the edible birch bullit. Or the less edible but not poisonous Fjolhnepla slender brittle gill, can be found throughout Iceland. Many of the less common species are extremely localized. The slightly poisonous Galskelta, ashen knight, for example, was only recently discovered in Iceland and is only known to occur in West Iceland, between the Reykjanes and Snæfellsnes peninsulas. The likewise toxic Gapkantarala, or false chanterelle, so named for its resemblance to its much-sought-after doppelganger, is also known to only occur in a Sitka spruce forest in South Iceland, and places along the eastern edge of the capital region. Let's say that a fungus was brought along with the roots of a tree, maybe in 1920, Gita continues. Then maybe we find it around this tree and gradually appears in one valley or region over time. Given how many more species of fungi are still to be identified in Iceland, it can be difficult sometimes, even for experts, to determine whether or not a specific fungus is native. If it's growing somewhere where we've never introduced anything, if it's natural vegetation, then we have to assume it got there without human help, Kitha says but often there is really no way to know. Despite this uncertainty, there is one species of fungus that we are sure is native to Iceland, or at least as native as anything can be to a mid-Atlantic volcanic island, the Chanterelle. You'll have a hard time getting information on the best spots for this fungus, however, as its status as one of the best edible mushrooms means that good spots are often jealously guarded secrets.
0: With more than 2,000 identified species of fungi in Iceland, it is by far the most numerous and diverse group of organisms. Only insects approach this diversity, with around 1,200 identified species in Iceland.
1: Mushroom foraging was not really done when I was young, Gita tells me. There may have been some people who did it as a hobby, but it's never really been a tradition in Iceland. Gida grew up on a farm near Vastleisestrunt, a region of the Reykjanes Peninsula right between Reykjavik and Keplavik. Her father was a coastal lumpfish fisherman, and when she was eight years old, the family moved to their grandparents' farm in Flúðir, a town in southwest Iceland known for its favorable climate and greenhouses. "'I've been hanging around in nature ever since I was a child,' she continues. "'I read a lot, did well in school,' And I know the exact moment I became a mycologist. It happened in five minutes back in the spring of 81. My professor gave me a list of projects. One of them was isolating fungi from soil samples, growing them on plates, growing them on different media. It was fascinating. Foraging for mushrooms is now gaining in popularity. Movements in the culinary scene, such as New Nordic, have reignited people's interest in the local and seasonal throughout Scandinavia and ever more information is available online for the amateur mycologist to safely identify their next side dish. One of the best resources for the beginning mushroom forager, besides several comprehensive field guides on Icelandic mushrooms, are two social media groups for Icelanders interested in edible fungi. Gíva herself is a frequent contributor to these communities, Swift to tell day hikers whether they've stumbled across an excellent accompaniment to some pasta and wine, or a poisonous mushroom that will leave them in the hospital. While it is possible to arm yourself with a guidebook and head out to the forest in search of some edible fungi, the potential risks can intimidate some. But what I recommend, Kila tells me, is to just begin by learning two or three mushrooms really well. Even a beginner can identify some of the most common food mushrooms, and if you just focus on two or three, you can start adding a couple more to your repertoire each year. Giva also tells me to keep in mind that false negatives can't hurt you, but false positives certainly can. In other words, if you're not sure about a mushroom, there's no harm in simply leaving it be. While Iceland is home to relatively few mushrooms that are outright lethal, a notable exception is Vyðarkvev, the, quote, funeral bell, many of the common poisonous types of mushrooms can easily lead to a day or two of diarrhea and vomiting. While it's important to be informed and exercise caution, mushroom foraging can be a real delight. Just be careful, Kida tells me, and eat them fresh. Many wild mushrooms spoil quickly, and it's best to eat them right away.
0: One of the best-known folk beliefs concerning mushrooms states that the spores of fysisveppur, puffball mushrooms, cause blindness, a belief shared by other traditional cultures throughout the world. Another old folk belief states that a woman who eats Kualupe, birch bolit, cannot bear children. When
1: I was recently in the Westfjords, I took an evening hike up to a waterfall near Bolungarvik, the season was beginning to turn, and up there in the mountains of the Westfields, the long summer nights were already a memory. A bite was in the air that hadn't made its way down south. Putting down my pack, I snapped some pictures and rested. But, pausing there for a moment, an entire forest was revealed to me in miniature. In the deep beds of moss that piled along the bank, under the lightly drifting gyres of mist, Little fairy rings dotted the place. Fairy rings, in Icelandic nörnaböjör, or witch rings, were long thought in many traditional cultures to be the result of the nocturnal revelries of elves and fairies. Now, we know that these distinctive patterns emerge from the networks of subterranean fungal threads known as mycelia. These mycelia are in fact the real fungus. What we call mushrooms are simply the fruiting bodies of a much larger, hidden being. I will not say that as I made my way back to my car that my thoughts were filled with visions of the hidden folk and fairies, but very often these traditional superstitions are trying to tell us about a hidden world that expresses itself in our everyday, visible one. Maybe that hidden world is just below our feet.
0: Well, thank you for that, Eric. Thank you. Why are you writing about mushrooms in our latest issue? Uh,
1: Well, I mean, obviously there's a kind of seasonal component. Um, A lot of the mushrooms in Iceland really start kind of coming out in the fall. Things start getting a little bit damper and cooler. Uh, There are some mushrooms that uh, come up in uh, like the spring and summer, Uh, but for the most part, like we really kind of see this like big explosion of them in the fall. And, you know, I mean, like for me, like there's just something really cozy about it. You know, I mean, like you just kind of go on a walk in a lot of like the forest areas around the capital, like whether it's the Dalur or Haydmurk or uh, like like Uskulid by Perlan, um and the airport. And, you know, I mean, like this time of year, like the end of August, September, beginning of October, like you really just kind of see this whole little, world come into existence. And, you know, I mean, like for me, I also just wanted to learn more about
0: them. So had you been foraging before for mushrooms?
1: Uh, I actually hadn't. Um, And there are actually a lot of uh, really cool free events like all throughout Iceland uh, that I really encourage people to check out. Um, By the time uh, we air this episode, it will probably be too late. So you'll probably have to think about for the next year. Um, but yeah, I mean, like there are all sorts of these like really cool, um, like free events to the public where, you know, you can actually go out into the forest, uh, you know, with an expert. Uh, so you can kind of, you know, like, like like bring them what you find and they can kind of check off whether it's safe or not. Um, in Reykjavik, uh, this happens down by the uh which again is like this kind of nature area um, out by like this old um, hydroelectric station. But there's also um, different uh, events like this throughout Iceland, uh, you know, like, we're talking with uh, Gida, uh, who lives up by Aquari. and there's also at least one in East Iceland um, by, like, uh, orms skoli I believe. Uh, there's this kind of, like, traditional, like, arts and crafts school, like, out kind of by Eilstadir, um, that has these kind of events. So, yeah, you know, like, it's really cool, and it's really um, kind of, like, a privilege to be able to discover a little bit with, like, an expert and, you know, just kind of, like, get some... Uh, get some tips on how to not kill yourself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and in at uh you spent what an, an hour foraging, maybe how many mushrooms did you find? Uh,
1: oh yeah. I mean, something like that, like an hour. Um, you know, I mean, just a little handful. Um, you know, I mean, I was also just kind of like interested in just like seeing what other people were finding too. Um, you know, I mean, uh, Some people just kind of like immediately had like a huge basket just like filled with like nice edible ones. Some people, you know, just kind of turned up with like a really sorry, scrawny couple smashed, sad looking things that were almost certainly poisonous. Uh, You know, it's just kind of fun to see like what everybody turns up with.
0: Um, And what's one big thing that you learned from this article that you had no idea about when going into it?
1: This is certainly not to encourage anybody to like recklessly go out and start eating mushrooms without knowing about them. But there are relative, you know, I mean, I think that there's a lot of fear around this kind of thing because we just, you know, like don't know that much about them, the average person. Um, And yes, I mean, definitely there are toxic mushrooms that can kill you. And there are toxic mushrooms that can leave you very, very sick for a couple of days You know, but that being said, uh, there are relatively few truly dangerous and lethal mushrooms in Iceland. And so, you know, that does take a little bit of the edge off if you're kind of interested in this kind of thing that, you know, I mean, obviously, again, like this is not to encourage anybody to be reckless, but there's a pretty good chance that even if you mess up, you'll be very uncomfortable, but you won't die.
0: (laughs) So you're saying just eat all the mushrooms you could find?
1: That is not what I'm saying. (laughs)
0: Um, w- one of the things that I mean, I guess most people have noticed uh, living in Iceland for some extended period of time, is like those like slightly odd-looking people who are yeah. frequenting traffic islands and like places near traffic for some reason, and and are yeah. picking mushrooms. I imagine that has something to do with psilocybin.
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, so the Liberty Cap, uh, one of the psychedelic mushrooms that's native to Iceland or um, it grows in open fields, so it actually doesn't grow in forests. I mean, um, you know, like, like I think that often we associate mushrooms with forests because there's all of this old dead wood and like they often like kind of, uh, you know, darker, damper places. Um, but specifically, the Liberty Cap uh, thrives in like open meadow environments. Um, and so, you know, I mean, in an urban environment, uh, like a very common environment for these mushrooms is, yeah, like traffic islands, traffic circles. Um, I mean, also just kind of like unkept yards of institutions. I mean, like, for instance, uh, if you walk around Iskulidh, um over by Reykjavik University, you will sometimes see slightly crunchy people uh, kind of stooped. Over looking at the ground very closely, uh, and you know the, these people are most likely looking for liberty cap mushrooms, um, and they do have a very distinctive look uh, that makes them relatively easy to identify. And um, you know, like it, like like it is worth noting that I mean, obviously these things grow in nature, um, but you know, like it, it is illegal to consume them, and so just kind of putting that out there. <laughs>
0: Yeah, you mentioned um the mushroom queen that figures prominently in your article, who's Iceland's only mycologist, fully yes. employed mycologist. Yes. Yeah. Um and you mentioned that she's a uh, regular contributor to two Facebook groups and it was um yeah, it was quite quite funny visiting one of those sites and and someone had basically plopped down about forty or fifty Liberty caps, and the caption was, Are these safe asking for a friend? <laughs> and it seemed to be like uh quite the number of such posts, <laughs> yeah, you
1: really notice um a kind of seasonal change that comes over uh these uh like like mushroom Facebook groups uh in September. And you get a lot of anonymous posts and people asking for a friend uh, whether something is a liberty cap or not, um, and <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, um, I'm not going to judge that. Uh, it's just a little bit funny, um, but you know, I mean, uh, like 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 the, like the serious side of that, right? Is that there has been um, a lot of increased interest recently in Iceland. In potentially legalizing psilocybin for the de- treatment uh, for uh, treatment of depression, uh, last year in 2022, there is this kind of like influential um, like meta-analysis done um, uh, in *Lichenblatt*, I believe, um, which is like a, like a medical journal, um, and you know, so like like it wasn't its own study, but it was a kind of review of the current scientific consensus and the literature. On this topic and you know some of the authors uh were kind of making recommendations that this could be you know a useful and like natural alternative to some uh depression medications you know i mean for what it's worth uh, psilocybin has proved to be very successful in treating depression um Uh, I recommend if anybody's interested in that topic, uh, there's a really good book by uh, like the kind of popular writer, Michael Pollan, uh, how to change your mind, uh, which is about psychedelics uh, and their uses. And uh, yeah, you know, I mean like, like it is like a really interesting topic and, you know, I mean, at least from what I've read about it, it does seem to be a really promising direction for the treatment of depression. And like the really interesting thing about it is that it seems to be quite effective with no kind of regular dosing, as in, it's not like it just kind of immediately changes who you are as a person and just completely makes you a well-adjusted person or something like that. But you know, I mean, like obviously with antidepressants, uh, these are daily medications and you have to take them all the time in order for them to work, whether it's an SSRI or something else. Um, But there is kind of a pretty good body of research that shows that like, very small amounts of psilocybin therapy uh, can actually really have like lasting benefits uh, for people. And, you know, I mean, like to be clear, um, psilocybin therapy isn't just, uh, you know, like you take mushrooms at home or something and then you're like a different person. But like this is in a controlled setting. It's with a trained professional. It's with a therapist. And like they're kind of walking you through the experience. And so like this is a very kind of structured Experience and you know this isn't some sort of. Um,
0: yeah, it's quite contrary to one of the commentators on the uh, on the uh, social media group who said, "Well, yeah, just take one mushroom for every two kilos of body weight." And, <laughs> and when someone protested and said, "Well, no, I, I I don't think forty mushrooms is <laughs> perhaps the adequate dosage for a beginner." So yeah, yeah I would yeah. not. Uh, yeah, I would not <laughs> recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. Um, S- segwaying away from sort of the psychoactive aspects of mushrooms. Um, I mean, as you mentioned in your piece, uh, mushroom foraging has also been uh, seen something of a—I don't know—would you call it a revival, or, or people are becoming more interested in mushrooms and foraging as pertaining to culinary pursuits? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, Just curious, uh, is there any sort of one common or, you know, any common species of mushrooms that people are looking for when they're looking to cook or?
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, the holy grail is the chanterelle, uh, which is just a very prized mushroom that's, I mean, like used in classical French cuisine and all of these things. And I mean, it really just has like this excellent, rich, meaty taste uh, and it does grow in Iceland. It's relatively rare. Uh, you know like like I said, um, people are a little bit secretive about like where the best spots for them are. and I mean like often like it's kind of funny in these Facebook groups, you know like like people will sometimes kind of like blur out the background or something like when they uh, like like share a picture of a chanterelle so people kind of can't guess where it was taken or something. Um, you know, I mean like it is also worth mentioning that, You know, unfortunately, um, some very desirable, edible mushrooms also have toxic doppelgangers. And so there is this false chanterelle that's not lethal, uh, but it will leave you rather sick. Um, So that is something to keep in mind. Um, And I'm, I'm actually blanking on the name and maybe I can put this in the show notes or something, Uh, but uh, there is a very common mushroom that you just see, like, in neighborhoods around town and meadows and stuff like that, and it has this very kind of tall, slightly cylindrical shape. Um, And if you look at it, it doesn't really look that appealing. Um, It's something. Um, But... um, it's actually a pretty, pretty good food mushroom, and it tastes pretty good. It's, like, pretty desirable, actually. Um, and, you know, I mean, you just see it walking around neighborhoods and stuff. It's uh, it's pretty much ubiquitous this time of year.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I read somewhere that um, mushrooms, they weren't sort of traditional food in Iceland, except for in Skagafjordur. For some reason, they made hmm. soup, mushroom soup there.
1: Okay. Yeah, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, um... And then uh, maybe finally, um, you close out your piece with uh, a sort of meditation on, you know, a kind of bridge between modern times and olden times, um, making reference to the hidden people, the hidden world of Iceland's folklore tradition. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that final note?
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, not to be uh, too, um, I don't know, mystical about it, but, uh, you know, like there is something very captivating about mushrooms. I mean, uh, the oldest, largest organism in the world is a fungal mass in the northwest U.S., uh, which is, I mean, like essentially just a huge fungal network that lives underneath the forest. And uh, I forget off the top of my head, but I mean, it's something like a thousand years old. You know, like, it's meaningfully, like, one organism. um, And, you know, like, it is, it's a living being that exists over, like, several square kilometers. Um, And there's just something very interesting about uh, the place that mushrooms and fungus have in the natural world. You know, like, they are more closely related uh, in an evolutionary time scale uh, to, to animals and plants, you know, like they kind of branched off of the things that we became sooner than plants did. So like we actually have a lot more in common with them and like that's kind of why like they metabolize things by breaking them down, you know, like they don't obviously produce their own energy like plants do. This is kind of one of the reasons why they have this kind of meaty taste. Uh, they just occupy like a really interesting place in the world and uh, just like this way in which they are dispersed through the landscape I think is really interesting and you know I mean um, I don't know uh, there's just something kind of magical about them and yeah like like the fact that they're hidden um, and you know like like the real mushroom is this mycelial network and like like the thing that we think a mushroom is that's like the like the little thing that pops up out of the ground you know, like that's not actually what the entire organism is. Like the, like the entire organism is something that's kind of hidden in the ground. And I think that's just kind of an interesting idea.
0: Is it like, um, you mentioned that you refer to them, like the things that we know as mushrooms as these fungal or these fruiting bodies. I mean, is that like the analogy holds to like an apple in a tree? Uh,
1: you You know, I mean like essentially, yeah, the mushroom exists to propagate spores, right? Um, but the thing that's actually like the living body is, uh, you know, uh, a bunch of strange, hairy threads that live in a network with each other. And then, you know, in order to kind of propagate themselves, they will, you know, spring up as a mushroom. But that's just, you know, like the tip of an iceberg, right? It's just the kind of surface appearance of like a much bigger hidden thing. And, you know, I mean, I think that that's just... um, it's just something interesting to kind of mull over.
0: Definitely. And and finally, what what do you think the chances of are of a mass fungal pandemic killing us all in the vein of The Last of Us?
1: Okay, well, um <laughs> interesting note. Uh so there's this uh so there's this uh guy, Paul Stamets, who is like a really big um sounds very strange to say this, but like fungal influencer is what I would call him. Um, I mean, like he is like a really big public figure who talks a lot about, you know, I mean, like, yes, the psychedelic aspect of uh, mushrooms, um, but, you know, I mean, also uh, just all of the kind of strange, unpredictable things that fungus can do for us and how unappreciated these things are. And so, like, he is a scientist. He's also, you know, like a writer, an author. He's published a lot of field guides on mushrooms. So, you know, I mean, he is a scientific figure. I'm mean, like, like, he knows what he's talking about. He's just not some like nut job or something. And I mean, like, he's actually made some like really amazing uh, innovations that use fungus. And like, he created this mixture that can essentially be thrown over oil spills, and it's this fungal mix that just breaks down oil and it really helps clean up oil uh, spills. And that's really fascinating. But he also trademarked this kind of fungus uh, that uh, kills ants. And um, and like, like we've all probably seen this image of this fungal spike that can kind of come up from an ant's brain. And so, like, there's this really dangerous, aggressive kind of fungus, um, and, you know, like, people somewhat popularly call this, like, zombie fungus or something, um, because it, you know, essentially takes over an animal's body, and it'll kill them, and then it kind of spreads itself by, you know, I mean, essentially creating a mushroom out of the head of the animal, and then it sends its spores out. And ants know about this, um, and when there's an ant that dies to this fungus, the ants know that this fungus can kill their entire colony. And they even have procedures for dealing with this. And the ants that are kind of designated to take away the body of the dead ant that has the fungus will take it essentially to like a graveyard that's far away from the colony. And then the ants that took the other ant to the graveyard will kill themselves and bury themselves with the dead ant because they know how dangerous this is. And Paul Stamets created a fungus that essentially like slips by their ways of detecting this. And so it only kind of activates like once it's in the ant colony. Um, And then it just kills the entire ant colony because then it starts spreading. And then by the time the ants know what's happening, it's way too late. And so, you know, like obviously on the one hand, uh, this is a really interesting and innovative and all-natural way to get rid of things like termites uh, without having to spray a bunch of, like, deadly chemicals around the foundations of a house or something like that. But, you know, it's also a little bit terrifying, and it shows uh, the real destructive potential of some of these things.
0: Wow, yeah, so if the ants have any kind of, like, organized religion, Paul (laughs) Stamets is a Satan-like figure.
1: Uh, Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) something (laughs) like that.
0: (laughs) Well, on that note, um, thank you very much, Eric. It was uh, very enlightening. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, Iceland's oldest English language publication covering community, culture, and nature. If you enjoyed listening, please consider liking and subscribing. You can also find news and long-form journalism articles on IcelandReview.com. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and the website formerly known as Twitter, X.